Thanks so much for inviting me to be here. And uh, <clears throat> I hope I can answer those questions correctly tonight. Uh, I'd like to speak this morning about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a tremendously important subject. As a matter of fact, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'd like to give two messages on the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord, uh, the second coming of the Lord, can be divided into uh, two phases. One, he comes for his church, and one, he comes with his church. One phase is without any wrath or judgment whatsoever. The second phase is all wrath and judgment. And uh, so uh, if you can uh, uh, lay hold upon that fact, uh, it will be a purifying hope in your life, a purifying help in your life, because I think that the Bible presents to us the fact that we always ought to be aware that the, that the Lord is coming. And uh, this year, we're at the beginning of the year, but it's good to start off the year by saying this year the Lord may come. Uh, would you turn with me, please, to First uh, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and Chapter One. First Thessalonians, Chapter One. You know, the Brethren faith is only about two hundred years old. So, as religions go, uh, the Brethren thinking, uh, Brethren religion, if I could use that word, is uh, a very new religion. The Lord Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago. And ever since then, for those 2,000 years, there's always been uh, something on the world which speaks uh, about a testimony to Christianity. And uh, for many, many, many years, it was the uh, Catholic Church. And then in the 1500s or the 1600s, there were those who protested against the doctrine of the Catholic Church, and they were called Protestants. And they uh, established uh, sort of different uh, rules to their religion, and they felt that uh, they wanted to worship the Lord more accurately than uh, the Catholic doctrine. And uh, so that occurred in the uh, 1500s and in the 1600s. And you had the uh, uh, presentations of great men, uh, uh, for example, Martin Luther uh, and uh, John Calvin and so on. And uh, so here's all these different denominations of Protestants. And when the 1800s came, there were still a group of people in England and, and Ireland and through Europe who said, you know, the religion that we read about in the Bible is still not accurately being presented. And that was only 200 years ago. And so that's how the brethren faith came into being. And the brethren, of course, uh, uh, hold up the uh, crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that was well known. And uh, they hold up the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that uh, Jesus is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
But there were things that these people felt should be uh, lifted up, should be exalted more. One was truth concerning the church. And if you come into a brethren church, you'll find that church truth, church teaching, is very prominent among the brethren. And two things concerning or uh, concerning the church. The first is, how should the Lord be remembered? We just went through that meeting. And uh, if you go to many other different denominations, you'll find that people don't do that. We do it every Sunday. We do it in a, in a unique worship meeting. And we emphasize the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we refer to that meeting even as the chief meeting of the, of the church. And then a second thing that they felt that was being neglected was a great truth concerning the church in that the Lord was coming for his church. And you know you can go to many churches and they never mention the coming of the Lord. But uh, if you read through Brethren Doctrine, it is the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church, the coming of the Lord. It should be an uppermost great thought in your mind that Jesus Christ is coming to bring his church to glory. Well, uh, if you want to study the coming of the Lord, then uh, 1 Thessalonians is a good place to start. Thessalonica was a city in Greece, and the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, he came to Thessalonica, and uh, he taught them for three weeks, and then he wrote this follow-up letter to them, which describes the coming of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians, it has five chapters and Paul mentions the coming of the Lord in every chapter. First uh, Thessalonians is the first letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Now, that's not doctrinal. I mean, uh, there's no verse in the Bible that says First Thessalonians is his first writing. But uh, the brethren fathers say First Thessalonians was Paul's first writing. If you get a hold of a chronological Bible, which puts a date on every page of the Bible, you would find that 1 Thessalonians was the first letter that Paul wrote to a church. And in that first letter, in five chapters, Paul mentions the coming of the Lord five times. And I just want to give you those five verses in the five chapters and then elaborate on that. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, uh, and in the middle of verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, that's a beautiful statement, and it tells us a great deal about the coming of the Lord. First of all, these Thessalonians, they were idol worships. Uh, they had the mythology of Greece, which was just fairy tales that they were asked to believe in. But when the gospel came to Thessalonica through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, 
that there was a revival in that city. And Paul says, you turned to God from idols. You know, that word turn is the word repentance. Repentance means to turn around. Repentance does not mean do penance or anything like that. Repentance just simply means you're facing in the wrong direction. You're facing towards your idols. Turn around. Turn your back to the idols and face God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And this is a verse that just sums up almost the whole of Christianity just in one verse. I mean, what is your status as a Christian? You have turned from your idols to serve the living and true God, and you wait for his son from heaven. And then at the end of verse 10, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead, he will deliver us by his coming. He will deliver us from the wrath to come. So there is no wrath in the rapture of the church. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes for the church, there is no judgment as far as eternal life is concerned. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just keep your place and turn to the book of Philippians. A great deal of our uh, worship this morning was... uh, from the words in Philippians. By the way, the book of Philippians, that was the last letter that Paul ever wrote to a church. And it would be an interesting thing, you know. Uh, you just put those two letters side by side. In uh, the last letter uh, to the Philippians, Paul speaks of himself being poured out as a drink offering. He says to the Philippians, All my life has just been served as a sacrifice before the Lord. But uh, look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. So in 1 Thessalonians, we wait for the Savior. In Philippians, we eagerly wait for the Savior. And you should eagerly wait for the Savior. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So when the Lord comes for his church, he is not only going to come to bring our bodies to heaven, but he's going to transform our body that it is like his glorious body. We will have a body suited for all eternity. Well, then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, that's the first mention of the coming of the Lord. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. For what is our hope? Paul is speaking about his hope. What is my hope? What do I look forward to? Or joy, or crown of rejoicing. Paul knew that there would be a judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, 
is involved after the rapture of the church. It is something that will be in heaven, and it is also something that is without wrath. There is no wrath in the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord judges your works to see whether what reward your works are worthy of. But as far as your eternal life, your righteousness, your sanctification, the judgment seat of Christ does not judge that. Sometimes, you know, people are a little afraid of the judgment seat of Christ because you feel that uh, we will suffer loss. That word is there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But it's a loss of reward, not a loss of anything pertaining to your salvation. It is something that is not of wrath. There are three things associated with the Lord coming to receive his church to himself. First, the rapture. There's no wrath there. Secondly, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I'd like you to think about that in a positive way, that the Lord is going to reward you for your works. That is a place where he gives his crowns. Yes, not every work that we do is going to be rewarded, of course. But it's good to look at that as a positive thing. And then just following that in heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is no wrath in those things. The wrath doesn't begin until the Lord comes back to this earth beginning to fight the battle of Armageddon, judging the nations, setting up his earthly kingdom. And uh, we'll be speaking next week about when the Lord comes in wrath, how he destroys the Antichrist, how he puts down the false prophet, how he once and for all defeats Satan, how he establishes an earthly kingdom. Of course, our, our home is a heavenly kingdom. We are at home in the heavens, but we will come with the Lord. And we will see that victory at Armageddon and the Lord setting up an earthly kingdom. You know, our brother stood up and read that verse this morning, that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. You know, sometimes we get so caught up with the fact that the church is going to heaven that sometimes we don't remember that there's going to be an earthly kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years an earthly kingdom. Well, the Apostle Paul here in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, My hope, the thing that I'm expecting, and my joy, and my crown of rejoicing, is that when I am in the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, and I see you there too. And, of course, I think the Thessalonians will have a lot to do with the crown of Paul. You know, I mean, there are five crowns, and one of those crowns is a soul winner's crown. And as the Thessalonians are there, they just bear merit to the fact that Paul truly is worthy from the Lord of a well-done, good, and faithful servant. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12, that the Lord, uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 13, 
that the Lord will establish your heart blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So this is when we come with Christ. This is part of the wrath phrase. When the Lord comes down to fight the battle of Armageddon, we come with him. You're going to see that battle. Actually, it's going to be a very quick battle, I think. It's going to be a great victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have those classic, classic words about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, where he comes for his church. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have died believing in Jesus Christ. This is not all the Old Testament saints. This is the church. This is a coming for the church. Those who have died in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive at that time and believe in Christ, we who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, again, there's no wrath in the rapture Paul speaks these words as a measure of comfort to Christians. One day the Lord is going to come. Those Christians that are alive on the earth will be caught up to meet him in the air. Those Christians whose bodies are buried in the grave, they will be caught up to meet him in the air. In verse 17, you have that word, caught up. Sometimes someone writes in a book and he says, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's not. But the word rapture means caught up. And that's, that's it uh, in verse 17. Shall be caught up together, shall be raptured together. And we will meet the Lord in the air. Notice in verse 16, the Lord himself will do this. It'd be a very interesting Bible study that you would give yourself if you just went through the Bible and found out the things that the Lord does himself. Himself. When the Lord comes to bring the church home, he does not send an angel or a cherubim or a seraphim. He comes himself. And he gives that shout and we just go. And I want you to notice also in verse 15 that when Paul describes the rapture, He says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, Paul was given a direct revelation from God. There's no verse in the Old Testament that speaks of the rapture. There's no verse in the Old Testament that speaks of the church. The church was a mystery. That is, nobody knew about it. The mystery was revealed to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And therefore, uh, there is no verse that you could quote in the Old Testament. When Paul speaks about the day of the Lord, about the Lord coming in judgment and wrath, there are all kinds of Old Testament verses that you can quote. But with regard to the rapture, 
There is no mention of the rapture. There's no mention of the church in the Old Testament. And so when Paul presents this, he presents it as a revelation from God. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. And then in verse 5 and verse 23, now may the God of peace himself. This is something that God is going to do himself. God is going to do himself. We'll come to a couple of more things that the Lord will do himself for the church. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, your salvation is complete not when... Not when you have a funeral and you're laid out there in a funeral parlor and somebody mentions your name and says, our brother is gone and he is now with the Lord and uh, he is enjoying his salvation with the thought that it's complete. Your salvation is not complete if your body is still in the grave. I mean, how can that be? Uh, if you were studying, for example, uh, next Wednesday, 1 Corinthians 16, that means last Wednesday you were studying 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the last enemy that will be overcome is death, right? And you sit there saved and you say, my sins are forgiven, but you still face death. You have not conquered death yet. How do I conquer death when my body is raised, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and I stand redeemed, body, soul, and spirit before the Lord? And then, that's when we say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You can't say, Oh, grave, where is your victory if your body is still in the grave. Just turn for a moment to uh, the book of Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts chapter 17. The first time that Paul came to this city in Thessalonica. And uh, he began to preach there. The book of Acts... Chapter 17, and uh, he comes in verse 1 to Thessalonica, and then 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the Scripture. Now, Paul had a chance to preach to these people for three weeks, and that was it, because a very great persecution came out and Paul had to flee for his life. Paul was at Thessalonica for three weeks. When he left, there was a church. And that is something unique about Paul. That is something wonderful about Paul. When Paul came into a city, for the most part, when he left it, there was a church there. At Ephesus, he spent three years when he left. There was a church in Thessalonica. When he came there, he was there for three weeks. There was a church. There was a church. 
And Paul headed right for the synagogue because here in Thessalonica you'd have a synagogue of the Jews. And these were people who already had a handle on the Old Testament word of God. And so Paul could go in and speak to them. Notice in verse 3, Paul's preaching. He explained and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer. That was a great stumbling stone to the nation of Israel. It is still a stumbling stone to the nation of Israel. If you say to the nation of Israel, Jesus is your Messiah, they say, Jesus, he was convicted as a criminal and crucified between two thieves. How can he possibly be our Messiah? But the truth of the gospel is that the Christ has to die. And a very interesting study is to go through the Old Testament and to see how many verses point out the fact that the Messiah has to die in order to redeem the people. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Well, when you preach the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not say anything about him without saying that he died. Right? We preach, Paul says to in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified. I mean, I, I don't care what the subject is. You probably can't get into this building and out of this building without hearing that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That is the absolute cornerstone, rock bed of what we preach. The Christ has to suffer. And indeed, uh, he does. And then there was this great tribulation, and Paul had to leave. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, as he speaks to them in chapter 1, in verse 2, now because he had to leave so abruptly, he writes this letter back so that he can explain more about the faith and explain more about the fact that this Jesus who died for their sins upon the cross is coming back for them. Is coming back for them. And you know, uh, even in our Breaking of Bread service, you know the way it ends, that we show forth the death of the Lord until he come. Until he come. Notice uh, in the First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said to them, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. Those are three lovely little phrases that you can attach right to your church. How would you describe the work of your church? It is a work of faith. It is a labor of love. It is a patience of a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, along with putting verses up on the wall. That'd be a nice little verse to put on the wall. Continue in your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. 
And then he says uh, in verse 9, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. It cost them something to believe in Jesus Christ. But that church was, was true and solid. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to them about that. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Turn to the book of Luke, uh, just a, a word as we close. The book of Luke, chapter 12. Now, in the book of Luke, chapter 12, we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe, of course, that every word is inspired to the Spirit of God. But I, I do read a little slower when I read the words of Jesus Christ, you know. I mean, it's, it's one thing to hear Paul inspired by the Spirit, but when you're reading the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you know, although it is all, of course, the Word of God. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let your waist be girded. In other words, just, uh, you know, your robes are not flowing freely. You're not relaxing. Uh, uh, you're girded. You have your belt on. You're ready to go. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. See, that's a great verse, isn't it? The Lord said that to his disciples. Be like men who wait for their master. You know, if you did that, it would give you an enormous amount of nobility in the world. You think about all the people who might waste their lives or talk about trivial things, and all of a sudden a man walks into the room and his eyes are, he is waiting for his master. And he's concerned with the things of his master. And he is a noble man. He's a noble man. John says in First John, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. If you get up in the morning and you say, perhaps the Lord is coming this day, that has an effect on your actions for that day. Be like men who wait for their master, that when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Maybe some of you are businessmen, you know. And you're sort of geared up for the fact when the Lord comes, I'm going to say, yes, I'll be right with you. But first I have to clear this big deal in St. Louis. And then I'll be ready to go. <laughs> no, no, no. When the Lord knocks, you go. You go. And your mind should already be settled to that. When the Lord knocks, he opens to him immediately. In verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. Yes, I know you're saved and your sins are forgiven. And the Lord is bringing you to heaven. But are you waiting? Are you watching for the Lord? That would have a great purifying effect 
in your life. Now, when he comes, we'll find watching. Notice the last part of verse 37. Assuredly, I say to you that he, that is the Lord, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. This is a remarkable verse. The Lord doesn't go into it anymore. I've never heard that verse preached on. But just think about that. The Lord brings you to glory. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you will be also. And one day that's going to happen. And the Lord is going to bring us to his Father's house. And he's going to say, everybody inside, plenty of room for everybody. And everybody sit down. And then the Lord says, I want to serve you your first heavenly dinner together. That's the way we're going to start off. I'm going to serve you a fellowship meal. You know, you know I mean, it just gets more and more precious. It just gets more and more wonderful. You can't imagine how there could be anything better than the promises of the Lord here. He will gird himself and he will serve you. You know, there's a couple of very personal times in the Bible. At the upper room, just before the breaking of the bread, the Lord started with observing the Passover. And as the disciples came into the upper room, this was the day the Lord was going to be crucified the Lord took upon himself the form of a servant and washed the feet of each disciple. He washed the feet of Judas on that day. You know, there's sort of a scary verse in there. It says that as Judas sat in the table eating the Passover, Judas is not at the breaking of bread, but he eats the Passover and the Lord gives him a gesture of friendship there. It says Satan entered into Judas as he sat in that table. You know, Satan is a formidable foe. Just think, the upper room, the upper room, the power of Satan is there. I mean, you, there's nowhere you can go where Satan cannot reach you. How important it is that we, that we walk in fellowship with the Lord. Or, uh, or the Lord washes the feet of the disciples. Or when the disciples after the resurrection are out uh, fishing, waiting for being endowed with power from on high, and they've fished all night and caught nothing. And uh, the Lord says to them, uh, have you caught anything? And, you know, they say no. And the Lord says, put your net on the right side of the boat. And as they haul in that big thing of fish, John, he's pulling in this net. He says to Peter, he says, Peter, we've done this before. <laughs> he says, Peter, that man there on the shore is the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard that, he just jumped into the water and swam to the Lord. And when they get up there, the first thing the Lord says to them is, have you had anything to eat? 
And here's a fire of coals made. And the Lord is preparing. Bring the fish and we'll all have breakfast together. All those warm, lovely touches. When we get to heaven, he will gird himself. And he will serve you in the Father's house. Can we just look to the Lord, our precious Heavenly Father? We thank you for your for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the promise that he is coming for us. Lord, it may be this year that he comes. We just pray that that hope may be within us, a purifying hope, a, a hope that makes our life noble as we wait for the coming of the Lord who will deliver us from the wrath to come. In his name we give thee our thanks. Amen.